So that was a tumultuous journey of nine months. We ended up as a refugee in India. My eldest brother, who was a 17-year-old who joined the Freedom Fight, and sadly, he has never come back. He paid uh, his yesterday for my tomorrow. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. Johnny chats with Councillor Imran Chowdhury, BEM, about his amazing journey from Bangladeshi refugee to recently being honoured by the Queen. Imran reveals the sadness of losing his brother in conflict and how his early life gave him a deep appreciation of both Britain and democracy. So much so that he is now a democratically elected councillor here in the UK. It's time for you to meet our guest. This podcast, Veterans in Politics, is all about having as many voices from across the globe now and from local government right up until uh, Parliament and beyond devolved government too. We've had a whole range of guests, but you are very first guest from Bangladesh. So that's very exciting. It certainly is. I'm very excited because um, my military background uh, from Bangladesh and then coming back to UK and utilising that and going into the local politics uh, in the county level is something actually has uh, literally epitomised my quest of uh, achieving something in life. Now, our, um, our listeners won't know, but we're actually friends and I was your agent and responsible for getting you elected. So we've spent a lot of time together campaigning, and it's an absolute delight to see you elected for the very first time. But before we get into all of that, Imran, um, I know we've spoken about it personally, but from the very beginning, can you tell us a little bit about your military service in Bangladesh and the impact that this has had on you in your life? Thank you, Johnny. Yes, I really uh, I owe a great deal of gratitude to you for all your support and how you have uh, organized the campaigning. Uh, it was very hard because the, uh, the district that our uh, division that I was um, nominated for was one of the very, very unsure seats. But with your guidance, with the hard work, I think we have come through uh, very well. And I'm, I have a lot of gratitude and a lot of homage to pay to you for your excellent professional work. I must say that. Oh, don't. You're, you're, you're flattering me. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's but... true, Johnny. You know that. I, 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 don't, I don't mince my word. I express my views and I always talk if I, if I feel good and I express my feelings. Uh, but uh, to go back to your question about my career and my life in Bangladesh Army, well, uh, to be honest with you, I had a very turbulent life uh, since 1971 when uh, the Bangladesh Liberation War happened. My father was in the rifles uh, and 
we were living in a different town from where my father was stationed. And from the day the crackdown happened on the 25th of March, 1971, uh, we became refugee, we became homeless. We, we, we had no other choice but to evacuate the town that we were living. So that was a tumultuous journey of nine months. We ended up as a refugee in India. My eldest brother, who was a 17-year-old who joined the Freedom Fight, and sadly, he has never come back. He paid uh, his yesterday for my tomorrow. Now, then from, from 71, uh, I was a refugee. And 1981, after I finished my uh, higher secondary school exam, I was selected in uh, to join Bangladesh Military Academy at that time when the military government was ruling Bangladesh. Uh, joining the army as a commissioned officer to be selected in Bangladesh Military Academy to become a, a gentleman cadet was one of the most uh, highest honored job that was there in Bangladesh at the time. So I joined Bangladesh Military Academy on the 7th of August 1981. I was commissioned in Bangladesh Army in the Infantry Regiment, the East Bengal Regiment, on the 10th of June 1983. Joining the army was, I must say, it was one of the best. I mean, I have thoroughly enjoyed my life in the army. I was trans I was commissioned in an infantry regiment, which was fondly called as Ferocious 14. It was the 14th regiment of the East Bengal Regiment. And as a lieutenant, second lieutenant, I had the opportunity to serve um, a battalion uh, where there are about 700 troops and I was the third officer in the regiment. My commanding officer, my adjutant who was a lieutenant and I was the only second lieutenant. So uh, from the regimentation onward after about first 42 days, I was literally thrown into the deeper end of the battalion administration, i.e. I was five company commanders, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, and the headquarter company commander. I was signing documents. I was writing annual confidential reports for the NCOs and the JCOs. That means the junior commission officers. And just within six months, I have gathered a 360-degree knowledge as to how a, a, an officer can man or manage a regiment. So I had no other choice but to do it. Of course, my CO was very professional and my adjutant helped me, but I was literally thrown at the deeper end. And when you were thrown in the deeper end, you have like 250 code of inquiries to do. You are the only president of the code of inquiry with three other JCOs and you learn whilst you do the job. And that was perhaps one of the best teaching that I have had in my life. And it was like 700 uh, uh, troops. I knew most of them off by their first name. My problem with the Deedan uh, setup in the army was uh, predominantly people who were trying to establish a kind of a military regime in Bangladesh. Democracy was thrown at the deeper end and I just reconnected that uh, 12, 13 years ago when my brother paid his, paid, paid his life to become an independent country in order for us to have a democratic government, 
where my father has endured 164 operations every on the nine months of the liberation war. Uh, he was injured, was in hospital for uh, a month and a half, again came back to war. He is a gallant, one of the gallant freedom fighters of the country. And I was a refugee, uh, endured the most precarious life in a refugee camp. You can, I, can exp- I can talk about it all night. But to see that my country, again, going back, like following the footsteps of the Pakistan army, they are again trying to um, capture the power in the, in, the, in, the, in the country to run a military regime. I did not subscribe to that. So I had no choice, but on moral ground, I, I made an exit from the army and here I am. Uh, after all this year, uh, I'm here for the last 30 years. And um, today I'm elected uh, as a councillor by a direct vote of the constituents of the residents of my district. And I'm probably the first Bangladeshi commissioned officer uh, in the whole of the world who has become a, a directly elected, a democratically elected uh, member of a, of a council. And this is something that I'm very proud of. And that was the journey, actually. And, uh, but having said that, army is an institution. If you, if you take that profession seriously, it embodies everything that a man needs to know in order for him to lead a life of discipline, a life of camaraderie, a life of sense of honesty, duty to the and and uh, extreme hard work. I mean, that's where is is a teaching um, ground for any human being to learn a, a, a profession where it literally embodies every aspect of life. I mean. Uh, and to translate that into politics, I think it's imperative that I should be able to uh, do Excel, if not better than anybody else. Do you know what, Imran? Um, one of the reasons I got you on the show is because I knew you could talk. <laughs> and um, But to be honest with you, your story is just so, I mean, obviously the tragedy uh, from those things that have happened to you in your, in your, in your life and the deep link that you have with democracy and how you view and value democracy it all makes so much sense to me now from when we first met and i can see why you cherish democracy so much and and i can see you know why you've stood up to serve again in local government which is really important but um so when you came to the uk what was it like when you first came to to the uk from bangladesh um, UK, I mean, uh, bear in mind, if you, if you go back to the pages of the history, uh, Bengal was the gateway uh, to the Indian uh, um, colonial past, because that's when uh, in 1757, um, the East India Company actually entered um, in, into, in, into India with trading rights and everything. And from there till 1947, um, was the time when uh, we were uh, made independent and we got divided. Uh, I mean, for us, in, our, in my family, uh, we always had a connection with the UK. My grandfather served in the First World War uh, with the Bengal Ambulance Corps uh, with 6th Pune Division, uh, which was in Mesopotamia at the time. 
And wow. then my father went back to India in 1923, and he served in the Calcutta, uh, the only five-star hotel in Calcutta, uh, uh, Bengal um, Grand Hotel, till till 1946. So, I mean... In our family, we had a lot of uh, good feelings. We had a lot of teachings. Um, my mother was a graduate in 1954. Uh, she served in the government of Pakistan. My father served. And to come to UK was very natural for us, actually, uh, because uh, the, uh, the association that we have, I mean, my ancestors' association with, uh, with the British authorities in in. Uh, in in India or vis-a-vis Bangladesh, which is now Bangladesh, used to be East Pakistan. Before that, it used to be Bengal. Uh, so we had a lot of uh, trading uh, relations with the East India Company from my family, and then from the uh, British, um, uh, I mean British government in India, Indian Indian government. So uh, we had ICS officers. My grandfather's cousins were. Uh, uh, British British Indian police officers, uh, Indian civil servants, and all of that. So, for us, the the transition from Bangladesh to UK uh, was 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 very easy for us. I, to come here and to acclimatize with the British society was was not very hard. Yeah, it makes complete sense to me. All that that service that your family has done for over. The 20th century is phenomenal, uh, from the First World War to until your own service too, and it won't escape our listeners to see that in your name at the end you have uh, the title, the post nominals BEM, the British Empire Men- uh, Medal. So congratulations again for that phenomenal achievement, and you know, you're a well-known businessman in the county of Northamptonshire and beyond, and um, I mean. To, to get such a huge award, I mean, what was that in recognition of, Imran? Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about that work? Trust me, Johnny, this uh, receiving the honour from Her Majesty the Queen, uh, it just, I never, 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 ever dreamt of it. And uh, yeah. to receive such an honour uh, is probably perhaps one of the most joyous moments in my life. Uh, the reason I was given... Uh, was my service uh, to the uh, British Bangladeshi community and the mainstream community. What I have been trying for the last uh, 20 odd years is to create more cohesion in the society, create more interfaith cohesion, because we have a lot of acrimonious kind of, you know, feelings that people don't understand because of the lack of knowledge, lack of interaction with each other, lack of um, uh, language. So I was trying to break those uh, taboos and the barriers to have more cohesion in the society. And hence, I don't know who was this uh, important person who thought I deserve an award and have recommended me uh, maybe not one, maybe few of them have recommended me, and I have received that for my work in the in cohesion, integration, uh, interfaith, and um, um, trying, I mean, youth work, and to create a more stronger Britain where every BAME and the mainstream society has a stake, and, you know, it's the... Uh, it's just combining all the cultures, the religions, the uh, the ethos together, so that we have a stronger society in the United Kingdom. 
that's phenomenal uh the work that you've done and that approach um you know we need more more imrans in in our country and that approach so it's phenomenal so congratulations again it's it was brilliant to see and in terms of your your work you've now transitioned another transition you seem to always be reinventing yourself into local government and but why did you get into involved with politics in the first place and what do you hope to achieve in your role as a local councillor, but in a strategic authority with a lot of responsibility too? Uh, thank you, uh, Johnny. Actually, um, I do a Conservative Party. I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, because it is a kind of a reparation, to be honest with you, in the sense that when I was a refugee in India, uh, we, we got very matured with the world politics because in the refugee camp, the, all they talk about is which country is helping us, which country is not helping us, where are we going, going, going to get the relief from, who is supporting us at the United Nations, who is actually vetoing uh, against us. So all of that I was hearing when I was 11 years old. So at that time, uh, for some reason, I became very uh, accustomed with the world politics, geopolitics. I mean, just imagine for a young 11-year-old, he knew who was Brezhnev, who was Uthant, who was Callahan, who was uh, British Prime Minister, who was Kissinger, who was Gerald Ford, because these were the topics that was always discussed uh, in the refugee camp to see a ray of light, which country is uh, going to ease our suffering. And in that uh, easing, uh, British uh, Conservative MPs were every other day visit visiting our camps. The British MPs were visiting our camps. The ministers, the Secretary of State were visiting our camps. Oxfam, oh, this was like the godsend messiahs for us in the refugee camp. So from then onwards, you, you start to grow a kind of a feeling that, oh my God, when my life was thrown in the deeper end of the pond, these were the people who actually looked out for us and came to rescue us and save us. Hence, when I came into this country, I thought I will, uh, I saw most of the immigrant communities are into the other, other camp. So I thought, no, it let me represent the party which has helped me. And if you remember, um, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom broke all the protocol and went and received our leader of the nation. So it was like the uh, United Kingdom has put a stamp on Bangladesh. It is like a giving a recognition to Bangladesh. So those are the things which actually prompted me to serve the Conservative Party. And I've always been campaigning, I've always been leafleting, and I've been doing everything that a, a member can do. But when this unitary project was coming up and the divisions and the changes of the spectrum of the democracy, I thought I could play a role in it. And from my constituency, i.e. the division that I represent, uh, was predominantly served by um, member of other political parties. But most of the people here uh, would probably get more benefit if we have a conservative member as the councillor of this division. So these are the things that prompted me. And I think I have a transferable skill that many wouldn't have, which I can probably employ into my new job and, and serve my residents far better than many other people. Hence the reason I have opted to become a councillor. Well, 
it looks it looks and sounds like you're enjoying it to me that's for sure i certainly am <laughs> and um to go back um slightly to your links with the commonwealth um do you think that the commonwealth has a healthy healthy future going forward and what are the benefits such as bangladesh and also the benefits for the uk too in having a relationship within the commonwealth would you say Commonwealth is huge for uh, Bangladesh, uh, and uh, Commonwealth in itself is huge. I mean, you are looking at uh, it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a um, association of all the ex colonies fifty three. You are looking at one and a half billion people, and if you look at the GDP itself, is uh, the combined GDP of the uh, Commonwealth is something uh, that it can mutually benefit all the members. And this is something the Commonwealth actually embodies all those people with, we have a shared culture, we have a shared economics, we have shared values, we have, um, I mean, we have been part of each other for well over uh, 250 years for many countries. So this uh, association, I think is very important Commonwealth is respected. I mean, I come from a colonial country. I know how valuable and how respected this association is back home. And um, we take huge pride uh, as a Bangladeshi. As a government of Bangladesh, I have seen in my past life when I was in serving in the army and that the Commonwealth is uh, valued very high. And that association, it is a soft power, actually, <clears throat> which helps foreign policy, which helps geopolitics, which helps military alliances, which actually helps to dissipate any other threats that can emanate from any other country or some despots or dictators and others. So I think it is as it is valued in the UK, it is valued in our country and vis-a-vis -vis other countries as a, as a massive uh, bilateral, uh, I mean, multilateral uh, association. And that's very important. That's very important, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I really agree with you. I'm a big, massive fan of the Commonwealth. I just think it enriches us all um, so much these days. And, you know, Her Majesty the Queen has been um, a phenomenal servant of, of that as well. Uh, but you mentioned just talking then about some of the threats that we jointly face together as an international community. What are the kind of threats that Bangladesh is facing right now? Um, we've seen the tragedies of some of the environmental threats in recent history. And um, indeed, you know, we all face similar threats across, across the world these days. But specifically, um, with your kind of military hat on as well, I guess, what are the kind of threats that Bangladesh is facing in, in 2021? Thank you, Johnny. Yes, Bangladesh, um, uh, the threats that I can see is, bear in mind, we have a, we are, we're a ticking time bomb in terms of environmental catastrophe. I mean, if the sea level rises further a few, few centimeters, uh, you are looking at a big chunk of Bangladesh is going to go underwater. And uh, Bangladesh has always been a, one of the biggest trading partners. If you look at the history, from 1674, Bangladesh and UK was one of the most ongoing trading relations that we have. I mean, bear in mind, in 1790s, uh, before the Lancashire trade boom started, Bangladesh, Bengal was exporting 
790,000 tons of textiles to UK. Uh, I mean, uh, this is something, A. B, uh, the, the, the Dundee whole industry of jute and carpet and everything was actually the, the jute in Bangladesh or all over the world is called the golden fiber and we are the highest producer of jute. So that's another trading relation. But the, the environmental threat is the biggest threat. But on top of that, uh, I would be very honest that there is a threat, geopolitical threat in Bangladesh, in Bay of Bengal region, and in North, uh, in the Indian Ocean is actually coming from a country we fondly call the Middle Kingdom. So there is a threat because firstly, it's a geopolitical threat that they want to have control over Bay of Bengal. I mean, bear in mind, Bay of Bengal is one of the largest bays in the world. It is the only, it, it provides a, a almost 180 degree axis uh, to the belly of the uh, Indian Ocean. And Indian Ocean is the ocean which carries 42.3%, my last uh, statistics was, of the world trade. Now, Bay of Bengal has been predominantly shared by Bangladesh, um, India, Myanmar, a bit of Indonesia, and the islands, uh, the Blair Islands and all. Now, a country is eyeing on that. They are actually now trying to entice the poor, uh, underdeveloped countries like Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, even Thailand. Uh, even in the deeper seas, in you were looking at um, uh, the uh, what do you call that um, island? We have uh, Gayum Abdul. Was the uh, I can't remember the name at this moment. So uh, the, the, these island countries are also at threat because what can happen is. Uh, they have the money and they're giving loan and turning that loan into a debt trap, which then allows them to act as bailiff to take over those strategic investment that they have made in terms of making deep sea ports and um, uh, channels and, um, you know, uh, riverine routes. So this can be actually a threat uh, which might, might endanger the independence of those countries. So this is a big threat that we have. And then the, another threat that is coming is, if you are looking at uh, the China-India uh, kerfuffle that's happening in the Himalayas. Now, bear in mind, uh, as, a, as a small officer, I know that no soldier can fight at an altitude of 16,000, 17,000 feet. You need an oxygen canister the back to fight. So the fight or physical um, skirmishes are not going to happen or battles are not going to happen up in the Himalayas. So in order for anyone to really attack or do something to unsettle India, uh, would probably have to indulge into um, entering India or Indian fronts through Bangladesh because we have uh, three India covered in three sides. We are bordered by India by three sides, and then we have Myanmar. So if you go back to the Second World War, the Forgotten Army and all of that, the Fourteenth Army, uh, the the Japanese wanted to enter. Uh, into this uh, soft corner of Myanmar through Thailand and through Bangladesh. Uh, so I'm just worried that is something, that threat 
Is it going to culminate into uh, Chinese boots in Bangladeshi soil in order for them to enter into India and to and to you know unsettle the whole region? And this is a this is uh, this is an impending threat to my understanding, and I feel that uh, the world need to uh, look into it and try and um, uh, quell it before it really goes any farther. And that is a big threat because. Bangladesh is one of the highly populous country in the world. We have 160 million people and most densely populated. And also the world is also dependent on the uh, production of textiles and garments for Bangladesh. I mean, we are the second largest garment exporter in the country. Now, if something goes wrong and if that's... Uh, tranquility, peace, and the production is hampered, it might certainly unsettle the European market, i.e. UA, even, even, even UK and America. So these are the threats uh, that can emanate from our part of the world. And I think the world ought to look at, uh, I mean, I was hearing that the UK government is coming up with Kanzak uh, uh, kind of an association or an alliance, uh, even the Quad uh, the America is trying to come up with another alliance quads. I think this kind of uh, quid pro quo kind of thing for uh, um, NATO kind of thing in our part of the world would be a element of uh, peace of mind for the people of that region. Otherwise, there can be a impending threat. Wow. <laughs> I'm pretty speechless to hear that sort of geopolitical commentary about Bangladesh and I've I've learned so much myself uh, just from from you Imran and um I guess but with uh, the opposite of threats are obviously opportunities so let's hope to see that on the basis of our commonwealth and those established relationships that we have we can actually see more about the opportunities rather than the threats but I guess the 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 threat that we 100% all, all share as you mentioned is the environment and now, as a local councillor, you're going to have a direct impact on some of the policies within uh, your community around the environment. Would you say that your experience of coming from Bangladesh and your unique understanding of the direct impact on the environment has shaped the way that you might approach your local politics, would you say? Yes, it does. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's actually... If you have the suspicious kind of alertness of the impending threat that it can pose and you can see back home, and if you try and improve situations or environmental issues here, which you can see, I can see, I mean, I have lived in 24 places in Bangladesh because of my father and mother's government service, and I went to 14 schools in Bangladesh to just qualify my O-levels. So I have, and those places I have been, those places are getting inundated, the deforestation, the environmental catastrophe happening every day in, day out. And now coming from that country, I think I can contribute so much to make people aware of the uh, issues that can lead to an environmental catastrophe in this country, because planting trees is very important. Keeping the environmental clean is very important. Uh, the erosions are very important, the floodplains, and how to, uh, you know, even have less uh, uh, amount of uh, carbon emission in your houses. These are the things I can perhaps uh, be very instrumental 
to go and talk to this my residents you know very small but small some sometimes goes into a bigger scale so if i start with something talking to my residents telling them to be more cautious more aware more vigilant about the environmental issues that we have in our hand we are going to have this cop 26 in november where all the world is going to emerge here and to talk about the environmental issues that the world is facing you look at the rain last night what happened in uh, in london i was stuck there for 6 hours the half of east london was inundated under water and there was like uh, is a river actually so these are the things that our children ought to know and that is why i'm running a lot of uh, events and actually a lot of activities within the bangladeshi diaspora kids and young young men and and also adults to make them more aware more resilient and you know do more social work get involved environmentally do litter picking uh, and and also talk about the energy efficiency and not to indulge in misusing the energy thereby uh, polluting the uh, environment yes there there are a lot of things we can do in our small way and if we all do a little bit little bit and then it's going to be a very big one and we probably have we will probably achieve the uh, carbon emission target that the government has set up to 2030 so we i think we all ought to play a little role to achieve that imran chaudhry bm i think i'm going to leave it there on that positive message thank you so much and uh, good luck with the rest of your local government career thank you thank you johnny i'm really honored thank you very much for having me on your show thanks to our guests and thank you for listening If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you. If you've been inspired as much as me by Imran's story, then be sure to head over to campaignforce.co.uk and sign up for our mailing list where you'll get news about events, future podcast episodes and everything you need to know about standing up to serve again.